2: Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com
1: or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
3: First time I met him, I want to be clear, Putin made no impression on me whatsoever. If you had asked me back in 1991 you know, name 500 people that will be the next president uh, to replace President Yeltsin, he would have not made my list. And I think that's important for people to understand. He was an accidental president chosen by Yeltsin. It wasn't some populist demand for who he was. He will try to get people off their game, say something surprising. At one point, he said to Vice President Biden, when the press break came in, he said, oh, Vice President Biden and I just agreed to visa-free travel between our two countries. And he just wanted to see how Biden would react.
1: Mike McFall is the director of the Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. Prior to that, Mike served as the Senior Director of Russian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff. Mike and I just sat down to talk about all things Russia. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
2: What makes a life a good one?
1: Mike, thanks for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. So, Mike, I want to start with, with a little bit about you for our listeners. And I'd love to hear about how you got interested in Russia and how did you find your way to the government the first time?
3: Well, I got interested in Russia from high school debate. Uh, I grew up in Montana. And my junior year, we moved to a town called Bozeman, and I tried to get the easiest English credit I could, and I was told, take the debate class. <laughs> um, so I just, I want to underscore the serendipity there. Um, and the topic that year was U.S. trade policy. And so my debate partner and I ran a case, as it's called in high school debate, on increasing trade to the Soviet Union. This was seventy nine eighty. Um, not not top I don't think I would have supported that idea uh, a couple of years later but I didn't know better back then and that's when I first got interested in the Soviet Union uh, my debate partner by the way is a guy named Steve Danes he's now senator Danes from montana and we both just became intrigued with the Soviet Union and then uh, as a freshman at Stanford uh, I showed up here as a 17 year old kid and I took how nations deal with each other, a course, on international relations and first year Russian. And then I just, I had a theory that, you know, if we could just understand that society better, uh, we might be able to reduce tensions or at least not have misperceptions in terms of U.S.-Soviet relations. And, you know, in a way, I've been kind of thinking about those same, testing that hypothesis for the last three or four decades. So that was the initial interest in Russia. Uh, I then later studied there in 83, 85, 88, and most importantly, 90, 91. So the year the Soviet Union collapsed, I was at Moscow State University and became quite interested in under what conditions do regimes collapse and under what conditions do political movements, democratic movements coalesce. That's been a part of my academic research ever since then. Uh, And that really, you know, I would say was a formative year that made me interested not just in understanding Russia and the Soviet Union, but becoming more involved in a kind of, I guess we would call it policy now. I would say I was more of an activist back then, kind of an anti-communist activist.
1: Yeah. Do you remember what the mood was like on the ground um, when the Soviet Union fell apart and you were there?
3: Yes. So I was... Physically, not there August 1991. I left Moscow June of 1991. But I was there for the run up. And I went to all the demonstrations and I interacted with a group called Democratic Russia. I started working for an American NGO at the time. Uh, It's called the National Democratic Institute. Um, so I did become, you know, I'm, I was not just an analyst, if you will. Uh, I, I was writing my PhD still, but I was also becoming a bit of an activist and it was, I then flew back in October, right after the coup failed in August, 1991. And the mood was euphoric. I mean, the mood was we have defeated communism. We have destroyed the Soviet empire. These are my friends, right? You know, these are Russians that I was interacting with. right? Uh, And we are now joining the West. And so, you know, when I hear that, you know, oftentimes it's it's phrased that, you know, the United States won the Cold War. Uh, Well, yes, the United States most certainly played a big role in winning the Cold War. But Uh, these Russians that I knew, uh, they were victors as well in the Cold War and Ukrainians and Estonians and Georgians who I knew at the time as well. So it was a euphoric moment. It felt like that, you know, Russia was going to join the West and become a democratic uh, system of government and a a market society, a market capitalism. And of course we know that's not the way that story ended, but back then it was quite euphoric. So
1: your first job in the government? What was that? How did that happen?
3: So my first job was at the National Security Council. You know these uh, words well, but I didn't know them that well. I was Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia Affairs, and I was a SAP, a Special Assistant to the President. Uh, And I started, uh, President Obama was sworn in on a Tuesday, and I started uh, that job on a Wednesday. So uh, I landed that job through, I worked on his campaign, and there was a like a group of advisors. And one of them was a friend of mine from Stanford um, and Oxford, where I went to school, uh, Susan Rice. And I signed up pretty early on, Mike, uh, back when I honestly didn't know much about Senator Obama at the time, but I trusted Su- Susan's instincts. And she said, this is one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and he's going to be elected president, and you should get on this bandwagon. And, and I did. And that was a great ride. Uh, so that's that's that was my first job. And then as I tried to leave that job and go back to Stanford, remember, you know, academics spend, I think the average is 18 months in the government. Uh, many universities have a requirement that you have to come back after two years. And so that was always kind of the clock in my head. Uh, but in 2011, uh, my immediate boss at the time, Tom Donilon, he was the national security advisor at the time. Uh, this will sound funny now, but he was like, Mike, how can you leave now? Uh, we're in such a cooperative time with Russia <laughs> with President Medvedev, and he had just, you know, we'd just gotten the, the START treaty done, we just gotten the Iran nuclear deal done. They were about to join the WTO and they just voted with us, or they abstained, to be clear, to allow the use of force against Libya, something Russia had never done. So the height of cooperation, and he's like, you can't leave now. And he called me back a couple hours later. He said, I talked to the boss and he said, you can't leave either, Either uh, President Obama. And that's how uh, it was from that conversation until the end of the year that they proposed that I stay in the government, but do a more family friendly job, uh, which turned out to be true, by the way. Uh, and that's how I became uh, the ambassador to Russia starting in January 2012.
1: Any particular memories stand out of your time in Moscow?
3: Oh well, Moscow was a fantastic job. Um, in in many ways, it was a difficult time in terms of my day job, which was you know right as I landed in Moscow uh, on the streets of Russia in Moscow and Saint Petersburg and other big cities were the the biggest demonstrations against the regime uh, since 1991, since that year I was describing 1991, and that meant you know for Putin that that we were out to get him and he blamed Obama. He blamed the America. And when I got there, he blamed me personally for seeking to foment a uh, revolution in Russia. Um, and you need to remember, you know, in his mind, I've always worked for the CIA and uh, I want to be clear. I've never worked for the CIA. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> and You can attest to that. Uh, But, you know, in their coding of things going way back to 1991, uh, I was a revolutionary fomenter. And so I arrived in that initial, you know, the weekend I arrived as a U.S. ambassador, there was a 20-minute hit job on national television uh, describing my mission to Moscow, which was to overthrow Putin. So that was the main drama, if you will, in terms of my service there. And no matter what we said, that was a useful Story for him and and it wasn't just instrumental i I used to think it was it was just instrumental. I came later to believe that actually Putin is quite paranoid um, and uh, thinks that we are trying to overthrow his regime and by the way, I don't know if we are or not today. I want to be clear about it, but when I was in the government, that was we were not we important. were not <laughs> We were absolutely not yeah you know, I got there right as u s Russia relations started to deteriorate. now they got a lot worse after I left. People blame me for the breakdown, and I like to remind people that you know Putin did not annex Crimea. When I was ambassador, he waited you know until the day I left. Uh, so the and it's been in a negative trajectory ever since 2012, right? Uh, because of Putin needing this narrative of the West out to get him. That's the that was the hard story, and and playing defense, trying to avoid worse worsening things happen. That was my. My government bilateral job with the Russian government, but the 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 you know being the ambassador, I'm, I hope it's like this in every country, but certainly in Russia, vast, incredibly complex society. Um, you know, I, I would host Russian basketball players and ball, ballerinas and musical groups, and, and and the other thing you get to do is you get to you get to present America in all of its uh, different dimensions to the Russian people, the kind of public diplomacy part of that job. And and I love that part of the job. Uh, In fact, one of my best memories, Mike, I'm from Montana, as I already mentioned. um, And one of the first groups ever to come to Moscow while I was ambassador was from Montana, a country Western group. And my father was a country Western musician. So, you know, that's a, a milieu I know well. And uh, I go down to the ballroom and there's no dance floor. And I go to my staff. I was like, where are people going to dance? And, and they said, Mr. Ambassador, uh, people do not dance at Spata House. This is a concert. And I said, no, in Montana, you don't, you don't have a group that, like this come. We will offend them. It will be culturally offensive if we don't dance. So we had this big standoff between the Russian staff and the new uh, American ambassador. And we compromised with we took out three rows. And of course, nobody danced as she was right until my wife and I got up. And then there was just this explosion of 300 Russians uh, doing the two step rather poorly, by the way, but with great enthusiasm. And uh, that was a fun night because it was a really tense moment in terms of US Russia relations. But There were senators there and members of the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, mixing it up with a band from Montana.
1: That's great. So, Mike, what are those things that Russia does that we see as inconsistent with our and our allies' interests and why do they do those things?
3: Yeah, that's a big, hard question. Um, And the first thing I would say is over time, I would answer that question differently. So if we were talking in the summer of 1992, for instance, uh, when I moved back to Moscow to open the office of an an American NGO, uh, the government of Russia invited us. We were a democracy promotion organization, uh, National Democratic Institute, and our host was the Russian government, President Yeltsin. And that's because they wanted the affinity with the United States. And You know, at least they pretended to share our values, and I don't think it was pretending. I think they wanted to be a part of the West. So I just think that's important to remind people that you know, over the years, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union, and even going back, you know, 200 years, that's you would answer that question different at different times. But today, I think it's pretty clear. Putin, uh, somebody I've known for a long time, or and written about, but met for the first time in the spring of 1991. Um, He also has changed his views, by the way. But today uh, he's decided that uh, the West is out to get him, that the West wants to overthrow uh, regimes that we don't like. Uh, And by the way, uh, we have done that from time to time. So he's got some data to support his hypothesis. Sure does. Therefore, when we use the words liberal, democracy, democracy, uh, he hears in those words threats to his regime. And by the way, he's right about that. At, 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 at one point, you know are we you know, funding opposition groups to overthrow? And the answer to that is no. But do our values undermine his legitimacy in, in, in his country and around the world? The answer to that is yes. And so he has you know initially he consolidated power inside his country. Uh, propagating a kind of nationalist, populist set of ideas, um, anti-democratic ideas. He would, he would use the word conservative. Uh, he would say he's a, a man of conservative values, traditional values. That's the way he would describe it. Um, and in the last decade, he's now started to export those set of ideas, um, uh, looking for like-minded leaders in places like Hungary and Italy and even here in the United States, um, putting a lot of money into propaganda to, to propagate those ideas around the world um, using, you know, um, his vast, and, and and I don't need to tell you, but he's invested a lot in his intelligence services, again, to, to in the service of uh, sometimes of, of propagating those views. And he really does define the, you know, the liberal West as his enemy today. And therefore he's pretty, Engaged in what he considers an ideological struggle with the West,
1: and can you describe him as a person? And you know, what's he like? What's he like to deal with? Um, what drives him? What motivates him? You know, he he paints himself as the great chess master. You know, is that right? Is he that much of a strategic thinker, or you know, just spend a little bit of time talking about Putin the man.
3: Sure. So the first time I met him, uh, he was the deputy mayor for a very charismatic pro-Western leader. Anatoly Subchak was his name. Uh, And I want to be clear, Putin made no impression on me whatsoever. (laughs) I tell you, if you had asked me back in 1991, name 500 people that will be the next president uh, to replace President Yeltsin, he would have not made my list. Uh, And I think that's important for people to understand. He was an accidental president chosen by Yeltsin. It wasn't some populist demand for who he was. And so his views and his ways have changed over the years and decades. But today, I I would say a couple of things about his mannerisms. Remember, he's been in power for over two decades. So he thinks he knows everything uh he doesn't listen to, even to his closest advisors anymore they're all they're all second tier people compared to him it kind of reminds me of you know I, uh, of what i used to read about uh, stalin like there was no he has no peers inside the country anymore in his view so he, he he's he's quite arrogant uh and number 2 he has that view about the world uh you know the last great leader in his view, that was a peer to him in the West was Angela Merkel. And now her time is coming to a close. Um, Xi Jinping, he admires, that's real. And I think we should understand that to be real. Uh, There is a kind of affinity there ideologically and I think on a personal level. But the rest of the world, he doesn't think he has any peers. Third, Mike, you'll appreciate this. He is a a well-trained intelligence officer. Uh, Remember, he did counterintelligence. So he comes into meetings uh, really well-briefed. And I've seen it many times with Secretary of State Clinton, with President Obama, with National Security Advisor Tom Donilon, uh, Secretary Kerry. These are various people I've been in meetings with Putin with, where he will try to you know, get people off their game, say something surprising. He wants to see how they'll react. You know, he'll then say, oh, I was just kidding. At one point, he said to Vice President Biden, uh, the last time they they met, they met in Geneva most recently, but the last time before then was in Moscow. I was in that meeting. And when the press break came in, he said, oh, Vice President Biden and I just agreed to visa-free travel. (laughs) <laughs> between our two countries, and he just wanted to see how Biden would react, right? Uh, so he does that kind of stuff. He likes to stare. He uh, he's done it to me, and believe me, it's scary, uh, especially when you're sitting uh, in his uh, office uh, on his side of the wall, and your bodyguards are on the other side. Um, he's got a he's got an intense way of looking at you. Um, he did this once to me when he was basically accusing me of, of, supporting the opposition in Russia and he wants you to blink, uh, literally and figuratively.
1: So stare, stare without speaking or stare while you're talking or.
3: The pregnant pause. He's, he's okay. very comfortable just staring at you and waiting, you know, with a kind of a glare in my case. Um, I, you know, what, what meeting with Secretary Kerry, for instance, you know, the the, the the principal in the room is Secretary Kerry. I'm just the ambassador, right? Uh, I'm just there as part of the, the the team. And at one point he just pivoted to me and said, we know what your embassy is doing here. And he just stared right at me and he said, and we're gonna stop it because we're really good at it. And it was this, you know, it was this kind of macho KGB, you know, we know what you guys are doing. And And by the way, if they, we always used to wonder, wonder about this, by the way. If he really knows what we're doing, and, and we have no reason to not believe that, why is he so paranoid? But uh, he wanted to, to elicit a reaction, and, and, and he deliberately moved away from Kerry uh, and, and stared at me to create tension in the room. And he plays those kinds of psychological games. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about negative ones. He also does it in a positive way. Uh, for instance, when he met with Obama in 2009, um, and, you know, I need to be careful here about what I'm going to talk about, but he was trying to make the case that there can be circumstances under which Russian and American cooperation on intelligence could be good for them and good for us, right? Kind of, you, you've heard that mm-hmm. argument yep, many, many yep. times and many decades, Uh uh, but to make for dramatic effect, I won't talk about the specifics uh, that, that's classified, but for dramatic effect, he dismissed all of the the help staff that was there. This was at his dacha. And he, he like told them to all leave the room. And then he kind of leaned in uh, to talk to Obama, you know, with a whisper. That was it was very dramatic. And I remember it. It made an impression on President Obama. Right. It it was effective theater.
1: We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Mike McFaul.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find Love at First Drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: So, Mike, I want to ask you a question, and I've been thinking about this. Um, At the end of the day, I'm wondering if history's going to look back on Putin. As someone who advanced the interests of the Russian state, or someone who who helped lead to its decline, right? And and yeah, as an example, I'm thinking about you know at the end of the day, who was the big loser in the Ukraine crisis, right? Obviously, the Ukrainians um, had their ambitions dashed. The West for looking impotent, but you know, at the end of the day, it's probably the Russian economy and the Russian middle class and Russia itself, right? Because of what's happened in the aftermath. Um, And I'm just wondering how you think about how history will see this guy.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I obviously don't have a great answer. And part of it depends on who has the pen for writing that history, right? Right. Uh, right? Whether it's people out here at Stanford or it's people of Moscow State and what happens in the post-Putin era. Um, but I'd say a couple of things. I mean, my own view is, uh, you know, I have no qualm with the statement of Russians that want Russia to be a great power in in the world. Uh, that's fine by me, as long as it's a democratic Russia and, and playing by the rules of the game. And and Putin very cleverly has convinced uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but a large segment of the Russian society, that his strategy is the strategy for making Russia great in the world. But but you can run the counterfactual. Um, and remember, you know, he was an accidental president picked out of obscurity. Had there not been the 1998 financial crash around the world, uh, I th- I'm convinced it would have been somebody else. Uh, in fact, everybody does. It's a fairly well-known story that the heir apparent back in 1998 was a guy named Boris Nemtsov. And Nemtsov was a pro-democratic, liberal, pro-market leader from a town, uh, Katerinburg, Sverdlovsk, a very industrial town in the middle of the Urals. And he won re-election twice uh, during an an economic crash, you know, throughout the 1990s. By the way, he was Jewish. So this notion of, of ethnicity, you know, he overcame those circumstances. Uh, and I knew him. He was an incredibly talented politician. And had that crash not happened, there's no doubt in my mind that Yeltsin would have chosen him uh, and and run that, that tape, uh, then, then they would be, they could be one of the leading players in Europe today. As opposed to be in opposition to Europe, and I think they could be a great, a much greater power today than the path that Putin went down them, because there have been real consequences for that economy as a result of annexation of Crimea and, and meddling in our elections in 2016. What I don't know is who writes that history, right? Because Putin was lucky in that he was chosen by Yeltsin then ratified by the people of Russia, right as the Russian economy began to grow. And that would have happened no matter who was chosen. They would, they would have ridden that uh, upside of 6 or 7% growth for 10 years. Um, but I you know, I think he will probably be remembered as the leader that brought Russia back from you know, state collapse in the 1990s and an economic depression of the 1990s, I just think it was a bit of an accident that it was will be Putin that gets the credit for doing that. So you do see the
1: argument, right, Mike, from time to time that if Putin wasn't in the job, there'd be somebody else like Putin in the job because that's what the Russian people want. What do you think of that argument?
3: Well, it could. And I think it's partly true and partly not. Uh, so let me explain that. Uh, so, you know, that's what people said when Stalin died. Uh, they loved Stalin. People cried for three days when Stalin died. The massive, massive lines went to, 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 walk by his, uh, open casket. Um, and yet three years later, you had a guy named Khrushchev that, that did de-Stalinization. Uh, so that continuity, even in the Soviet period, wasn't there. Um, and remember, you know, uh, in the Brezhnev era, it was a period, we called it Zastoy in Russian, stagnation, but but nobody, and I was living there in 1983. In fact, I was living there in 1985 when Mikhail Gorbachev came along. Nobody in 83 and 85 was saying, well, this system is going to radically uh, transform, let alone collapse five years later. So so I'm very skeptical of the the kind of trajectory, culture doesn't change, history doesn't change. I think there's an action reaction between culture, history, and individuals, and political change. And and when I think about Putin, I think what is more, what's the more radical prediction that 20 years from now, um, this basic corrupt, poorly functioning uh, system will be in place 20 years from now, or that something will replace it? You know, after the end of the Putin era, I don't think Putin himself. Will lose power, but but I'm skeptical that what he's built uh, will last, you know, another decade or two. Now I'm not comfortable in trying to predict what might replace it. Uh, something even worse could replace it, uh, but but there could also be this opening for democratic renewal. Um, and I would just say, if you look at the data, uh, you know, it's hard to do public opinion work in Russia. Uh, believe me, you have no incentive in that society to express your true true preferences. People need to rem- rem- remember that when they look at polling from places like China or Russia or Iran. Um, and we know that from history that, the, the you you know, if you're sitting out there in Vladivostok and, uh, you know, Volodya from Moscow calls from a polling pump firm and he says, hey, we want to know what you think of Putin. <laughs> uh, you know, there's really only ration, one rational answer to that. Um, right, right. Uh, you know, yeah, of course he's doing great. Uh, there's no upside to, to expressing what you might truly think. So with all those caveats yet, yeah, it, it still is the case that that there's quite a bit of disenchantment in Russia today with the economy. They don't blame Putin, right? He's He's been able to separate himself from the performance of his government. But they're not excited about what's happening in their country today. Um, And, you know, they still do support uh, should leaders be elected versus chosen by God or chosen by a party. They still think that leaders should be elected. So I actually think there's there's a lot of volatility coming in the Russian political system in the post-Putin era. And there's one other thing I would say, you know, putting on my social science hat now, um, we're not, you know, I don't know how you, uh, think about the CIA's ability to predict the future. Uh, but you know, we in political science are pretty bad at it. Everybody is. Everybody is. We're not good at point predictions, but we, we are pretty good at some long-term trajectory things over hundreds of years. And over hundreds of years, there's a pretty strong correlation between the more well-to-do a society is. More educated it is, the more urban it is, the more uh, income, GDP per capita, uh, the more likely there is to be demand for democracy. Um, And, you know, if you look at GDP per capita, 18 of the top 20 countries in the world, if you kick out the oil exporters, they're all democracies. I don't think that's a spurious correlation. Uh, Russia is one of the richest countries in the world today, GDP per capita, Singapore, Russia, Kazakhstan, that are not democratic. And I sometimes, you know, if you're betting, you you think that's going to last or will some over decades, not not in two to three years, but over decades, will Russia become more like Europe? My prediction is they'll probably become more like democratic Europe.
1: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Mike, one more question on Putin. What, what worries him? What is he afraid of? And I'm asking that question in the context of what might deter him, what might lead him from the kind of behavior that has so, so worried us. And
3: yeah, that's a great question. I think it's the fundamental question for, you know, the Biden administration and all uh, democratic uh, governments in Europe. Um You know, from his perspective, he's gotten away with a lot recently, right? Uh, He annexed Crimea and he said, you know, I dare you to uh, unravel it. And we failed to do so. Uh, We played a game of chicken in Syria still when I was in the government. And, you know, President Obama used to make the argument to him that if we don't stop this this contest, this this conflict, even, you know, back in 2011 when it was still peaceful, uh, it's going to get more violent. And there's going to be more radicals there. And Putin said, uh, yeah, and I know what to do with that. We have the experience of Chechnya. Uh, we'll just back a strong man until uh, he succeeds. And uh, he took that bet and he you know deployed his air force in 2015. And from his perspective, he thinks that that was the right course there. Um, and 2016, when he violated our sovereignty in our elections, uh, he dared us. To, to to push him out and to make him pay. And from his perspective, he doesn't th- think that he personally has paid a price, even though many oligarchs have, and most certainly the Russian people have. So I think it's hard. I, I want to be clear about that. Um, having said that, I, I do think uh, there's two or three things one can do. Um, number one, you need to make cre- more credible our commitments to our allies. And, and reduce to near zero any doubt in Putin's mind that if he does use force against a NATO ally, there there will be a response from the alliance. Now, I applaud President Obama and, and, and President Trump for uh, doing more uh, with respect to our Article 5 commitments, as they're called, to NATO. But I think we need to do more. I, I think there's still too much doubt. And I really worry about uh, you know some minor skirmish in one of our NATO allies, uh, and then he pulls back, and then we don't respond. That's my nightmare scenario. But that's number one. Number two, for those countries, we're not going to defend militarily. I'm thinking of Ukraine first and foremost. I think we have to give them as much capacity as possible to defend themselves. Um, And that's why I applaud the recent upping of military assistance to Ukraine. Um, and number three, you know, I hate to sound like a cold warrior because it's it's not the right analogy. There's lots of things that have changed, but but this is an ideological struggle with Putin. Um, and I think we have to up our game into, one, just supporting uh, those that support independent reporting. Uh, so that's one dimension that I just think we need to do more of as a government and, and as a you know, uh, democracies in the world. But two, I think we have to get back into the game of supporting uh, and explaining why democracy is better than autocracy. Uh, and that is threatening to Putin. And and I, you know, we do do some of that, but I think we could do a, a whole lot more.
1: So, Mike, your, your assessment of President Biden's approach so far to Russia and to Putin?
3: Well, uh, the greatest achievement is that we have one policy towards Russia today, not two, as we did during the Trump administration, where you had basically, not not entirely, but almost the entire administration had one policy that they were pursuing. And they the president himself, President Trump, disagreed with that. And that, that led to a lot of bad outcomes. So thankfully that that is not happening today and, and you have one policy and I, I think the broad contours are correct which is uh, low expectations for you know uh, reversing the negative trend uh, but trying to at least slow down the negative trend um, and to cooperate uh, on matters where our interests overlap and and first and foremost that that re- relates to arms control I think that's the right strategy. Uh, I would like to see more on the ideological dimension. Um, I think there are small D Democrats in Georgia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia itself, um, and small D Democrats in the alliance and some of the frontline states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, who would like to see more, more meat on the bones to statements that President Biden rightly says. I mean I think he rightly has diagnosed the problem uh, and this is with respect to China as well that th- there is a battle between uh, democracies and autocracies and he has said that many times in very various ways. Uh, and I applaud that. I think analytically he's right about that. I think now they need to fill in well if that's the case, what are we going to do to be to lean in? to support, you know, small D Democrats. So by that, I mean, democratic governments, but I also mean, you know, Democrats fighting in these countries, uh, against autocracy. And that part I think needs, you know, just needs more articulation. Mike,
1: one, one final question. So looking at, at your CV, I see that no matter where you go, you always find your way back to Stanford. And, and I'm wondering why.
3: That's true. I've left, I think, eight times, and I've always come back. Um and I would leave again, you know. I I I I loved working in the government, by the way. I, it was a thrill of a lifetime, both at the White House and in Moscow. Uh a great honor to work with people like you. Um but at the in the in the long stretch, I actually I'll just tell you a story from one of my colleagues here, uh, Condi Rice. Uh I, I met Condi 30 or 40 years ago and she'd just gotten back from her first tour of government and she said and i was you know still writing my DPhil, my phd at oxford and trying to figure out whether to go into academia or government and she said well you know there you know you, if you go into government you should go all in and make a career out of it um, but if you're going to parachute in and out uh, as she did in her career and this is early on in her career She said, "Remember one thing: that if you're going to be one of these political appointees in and out of government, um, remember that you're going to spend most of your time out of government. Make sure you choose a career that you really enjoy." And I love Stanford, Uh, and uh, for lots of reasons, but but two are central. One, it is my job to continue to learn here, Mike. Uh, It's you know that's a great. that's a great blessing that that I, it is actually my job to learn. Um, and I think there, you know, sometimes people can spend too much time in the government circles, not learning just but, but treading water. Uh, so that's a great privilege. And number two, you know, uh, Stanford community doesn't get any older, right? I get older, but every year, because, you, you know, you we're talking here in the fall quarter, there are all these young new people here. And they're really smart, and they ask really tough, interesting questions. Uh, and and I, I change the courses I teach here every two or three years. I rarely teach a course more than three years because I use the classroom to learn uh, from these students. So they think they're learning from me, but I know that it is a two-way street. Uh, and that's a, pretty, that's a pretty great place to, to spend your career.
1: Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Mike McFall. I'm Michael Morel. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.